Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einsteiner Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R on this fine Sunday. We have got an hour of science for you right now, and in the studio with me, and I mean in the studio, which is absolutely rare and a, a rare treat, is uh, Stacey. Good morning, Stacey. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. Uh, good to see you in the flesh. Yeah, it's um, nice to be in the studio with you. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit weird. Uh, now, we can't put too many people in the studio, so on the line is also Dr. Dr. Ailey, good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are we going? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Good, good. And we've got a new, very excited, a new, no doubt, from all the uh, NASA stuff over the last week. Hey, a new. I can barely contain it, Dr. Shane. <laughs> well, let's get straight very into exciting. it. Yeah, let's get straight into it because I can see you having trouble. I mean, I was pretty excited during the week at what happened, but let, let's hear it from you as well. What what went on? Well, we had we had two different events take place in the very same week. And, of course, the very first one was the Ingenuity flights. One and two have now occurred. Um, so very successful mission. I mean, it was successful from the very first flight, which was uh, as it was only a technology demonstration. Mm. So, um I thought today maybe I'd talk a little bit about like why it's so important, why, you know, it's actually quite exciting. It's obviously because, you know, Ingenuity is like the very first, um, you know, flying machine to ever be sent to another planet. Um, Additionally, though, the physics on Mars is completely different to what we have here on Earth, owing, you know, primarily to the one-third gravity in in addition to um, the very thin atmosphere and also uh, the 1% of pressure on the surface as well which means that there are less air molecules which will actually interact with the, the rotor as it's turning. So to send something to Mars and not be able to test it under those conditions right here on Earth, because we do here, of course, have like, you know, 1G gravity and or, you know, a, a full atmosphere. Uh, so when ingenu- Ingenuity got to Mars, it actually hitched a ride in the belly of Perseverance and then was lowered down to the surface. And um, it was actually protected with a heat shield upon entering to the planet and, you know, it's only about 49 centimetres tall and weighs about 1.8 kilos. So it's about the size of a baby. I don't have a baby, so I'm not sure it's the size of a baby. It's a big baby. It's a big baby. <laughs> and there are no instruments on board, of course, once again, because it's only a tech demonstration that we can actually make something fly. And if we actually think about the future repercussions of this, like what would it mean for when we do send humans to Mars, like now we're going to have an additional form of transportation potentially to be able to explore the Martian surface. So currently it's got five flights planned. We've had um, one and two. The very first flight was accomplished on the 19th where it climbed to three metres and hovered for 30 seconds and then came back down onto the surface. And two souls later, so two Martian days later, it had the second flight on the 22nd where Ingenuity climbed to five metres, tilted sideways, Uh, for two metres and travelled east and then descended again with a total flight time of 51.9 seconds. And the third flight is scheduled for tomorrow. So their Sunday in the Northern Hemisphere and our Monday is going to be very exciting because this time Ingenuity is going to go up to the same altitude of five metres. And this time it's actually going to tilt and go 50 metres to the north and then come back uh, 50 metres. So it's a total of 100 metres. And flights four and five will be dependent on the data and analysis that they get from uh, the third flight. 
And it actually used to stay quite close to um, Perseverance. I think it was about 300 meters, if I remember correctly, uh, because it's actually using the Perseverance communication um, relay system to actually get commands from Earth. So it's actually going via Perseverance. So it's kind of like a nice little like Perseverance is like the mommy and Ingenuity is the baby. And then uh, after Flight 5, Ingenuity is actually going to fall asleep and Perseverance is going to move away and continue on its journey. So it's kind of like... Yeah, it's it's a, it's a little journey in itself, like a little story in itself, isn't it's it? It's super cool Should stuff. I s- yeah. <laughs> I always have that image and of, we- you know, when you've been out there with your kids on the oval, you know, <laughs> if you've been in this situation and, and you flew that drone just a little bit too far and you see it just keeps going because you've no longer got control of it. I hope that yes. doesn't happen with Ingenuity because <laughs> they are heading a fair way out now. And it's amazing. The best part is, of course, is that it's it's ticked all its boxes of success already. So Absolutely. this is just bonus uh- stuff, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think it was also a good demonstration of like how quickly they could go from a design uh, to a functioning Mm. prototype. I think it was six years over at JPL and NASA Ames combined. And of course, this week we also had uh, Crew Dragon Crew 2. So they are SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket launched up to the ISS as well. So we had many moments this week. It's cool stuff. It's been a big week. Uh, I cheered up a bit when I saw the little helicopter take off. It was was a pretty special moment. So thank you and you. It is. Now, Thank Ailey, you, Dr. Shane. Ailey, what have you got there uh, for us? So I'm going to talk about something back here on Earth, actually, and uh, we're going to talk about some Earth processes and some of the big shaking Earth processes. I'm going to talk about earthquakes today. So, <clears throat> excuse me, when we when we have earthquakes, you know, those really, really strong ones that cause, um, you know, untold devastation, they're normally the big ones. They're normally above what we call magnitude eight. Now, if we think about the scale on which we measure earthquakes, it's it's what we call a logarithmic scale. So what that means is a magnitude eight earthquake is like 32 times larger. The energy released is 32 times larger than a magnitude seven, okay? And that's how we measure how strong earthquakes are, by kind of the energy that they release. So the problem uh, when we're looking at earthquakes, though, is that we can't forecast them. It's not like other natural disasters where we can uh, use some sort of like weather forecasting or, or whatever we're using to tell people that they're coming and give them warning. Earthquakes, we have no warnings, and that's part of the reason they're so devastating. Um, but a fantastic new study has just come out from a group at uh, Victoria University in Wellington in New Zealand. It came out in Nature Geoscience this week. And it was a really interesting study that basically showed how fault lines can control whether or not you get one of these huge earthquakes. So what they did was over a number of years, they looked at the uh, Alpine Fault in New Zealand. So this is one that kind of runs up and down the, the South Island. And they went and grabbed uh, a bunch of what we call sediment cores. So they took a big drill and they went to areas where there were sediments, um, so, you know, silt and and mud that had kind of come down in rivers and whatnot, and they drilled down and they took these cores and they had a look at them. And in them they identified um, old earthquakes over the last 4,000 or so years, and they can do that by looking at... um, They can tell if the sediment's been shaken. Uh, They can tell if there's been a big landslip or things like that, which are typically associated with seismic activity. And they could tell the size of the earthquake from these sediment cores. And so they had a look at those. And then they looked at uh, computer modelling. And they looked at how uh, basically fault lines move and change when there's an earthquake. And what they found 
was that the geometry of the fault line, so basically um, kind of the direction it points and, and how it points, and uh, yeah, the geometry along that fault line really regulates how strong the earthquake is. And they describe it as almost like a gate. If the geometry of the fault line is in a particular direction, then there's kind of a gate, there's a lid on how strong that earthquake can get. Hmm. But if the geometry is in another direction, then that gate is open and that energy can move effectively up the fault line and that's what causes those massive, massive earthquakes. So this is really important because if we think about, you know, how devastating those giant earthquakes are, what they're... Um, I suppose, hypothesizing the next step of this is, is that if you can look at the geometry of these fault lines, and if this is true for other fault lines around the world, they only looked at one. Um, but if you can look at the, the, the geometry of these fault lines, it can tell you kind of, can't tell you exactly when it's going to happen, but it can tell you whether or not you might expect one of these giant earthquakes, you know, within people's lifetimes. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but going from nothing, you know, having zero idea whether one of these is going to occur to saying, well, actually, there is a risk of one of these giant earthquakes or no, the risk is, you know, pretty much non-existent. Mm. That's, that's really helpful for being able to prepare um, for earthquakes and for these, yeah, really devastating events. Yeah, I, I suppose the, the, the difficulty there is if they do say there's no risk of a big one, they better be damn sure that that day is yeah. correct because that's when people start making decisions decisions that change behavior and as we know um, from luckily in Italy uh, you know yes. that has had devastating effects in the past yes, it's, it's such a difficult field um, as you say it's such a difficult field but it sounds like a really good um, step forward for that so that's that's very yeah, interesting. No, it's, really, it's really really promising and it's um, as you say I mean I don't think there's no risk but it just it, it really elevates the yeah. risk or reduces the risk which is which is you know, it, we're kind of getting to the point in geology now where we can at least start telling something about the yep. earthquake will form. Uh, whereas ten years ago, we we couldn't, couldn't say tell anything, anything at all. Just, yeah. I don't know. Yep, yep. Good luck. Um, yeah. yep. Thanks, <laughs> Ali. Very interesting stuff. Stacey, what have we got for us? Uh, well, I came across a bit of a, a, a retracted paper this week in the European Respiratory Ooh. Journal. Yeah, so we've, I think we've spoken about retractions before. Um, so this is where there might be serious misconduct issues with a, with a paper and the journal will need to withdraw that paper from mm. publication. But more often than not, they're, um, they're not serious misconduct. It might be things like errors with the study, um, problems with reproducibility and plagiarism and things like that. Yep. But this paper that I came across was um, looking at the characteristics and risk factors for COVID-19 in Mexico. And they wanted to look at the uh, risk factors for severe disease. And what they found was is that current smokers were underrepresented in this cohort and they found that they were less likely to develop severe disease. Mm. And they made the assertion that smoking is protective against oh, severe disease. <laughs> Who was that research funded by? Let uh, me guess. Ah, well, actually, <laughs> good question, because that's why um, the paper was retracted. Right. Essentially, there were some undisclosed um, conflicts of interest with a couple of the authors and they had links to the tobacco industry. Surprise, surprise. That's right. Yep. But there have been a few other small scale um, hospital-based cohort studies that have found similar findings that, that smoking may be protective against severe disease. So I thought, given all the interest in uh, the field of epidemiology lately, that it might be a good time to have a talk about um, you know, some of the biases and systematic biases that can mm. creep into some of these observational studies that can lead to um, these spurious findings or paradoxical findings. 
So um, there's a there's a few few things that I thought that we could talk about. The first one is that these studies are looking at observational data. So this is real life data. So it's not a randomized control trial. It's um, uh, data and, and and people participating in their life, and then we're drawing um, conclusions yep. and, and forming an epidemiological study from yep. real life. So data. it's messy data. It is a bit messy. Yeah. It's yep. it's Im- imperfect. Yep. Um, and observational studies can be flawed to these uh, have some methodological flaws in their design or the analysis. And if they're not addressed, that can lead to um, biases in the results. So if we take this smoking example, um, smoking as a risk factor, or in this case, a protective factor against disease, we need to think about what forms of bias may be introduced into that study that's led to these counterintuitive findings. And the first one is misclassification bias that we speak about. So this happens when you have a risk factor or an outcome that's wrongly ascribed to participants. Mm. So, you know, it's particularly problematic if that's differential between groups. So it might be um, smokers that are mis- incorrectly misclassified as being non-smokers or missing. Yep. And so when you think about hospital-based cohort studies looking at severe disease, um, these people are critically unwell. So it might be very challenging for researchers to gather the data around smoking status for people who are like in ICU or, or critically unwell. So that's some, yep. So these people might be incredibly Incorrectly or misclassified as as non-smoking, so that sort of un, you know influences how you're you yeah. know where where you're starting from in, in in the study in the first place. And the second one is collider bias. Now this might be referred to also as a type of sampling sampling bias or selection bias. And this occurs when you have both the risk factor and the outcome of interest it actually influences the likelihood of being sampled into that study in the first place. So I'll I'll mm. I'll bring you back to the um to the smoking example. People, you know, to get included in this study, you have to have severe enough disease to go to hospital. But we know that smokers have a lower propensity to seek healthcare anyway. So right. already they might be less likely to be sampled into that study. Yep. And and there's there's plenty of other examples where they might you, you might look at the study and think, well, you know, there's it's underrepresented that smokers are in this study. However, they there's probably other reasons driving why they can't um, be included in the sample in the first place. So there's a few others that we can talk about later, but yeah, um, that's indeed. just, yeah, tough, tough of the things that we need to think about when you come across these sort of paradoxical findings yeah. and how we might be able to account or adjust for those going forward with um, some of the observational studies. Especially and ones as brutal as that. Absolutely. Because uh, I think that's one we want to keep away from. All right, folks, uh, we're going to have to take a break in a moment for some uh, Important music and later, yeah, you know, all sorts of stuff going on. Um, thanks, New. Thanks, Ailey. Good to see you both. Thank you. Dr. Thanks. Shane. Um, folks, we're going to take, uh, yeah, we'll take a few moments for uh, some music and we'll be back in a moment. Now, unfortunately, we were having um, May and her mother Louise on today, but, um, you know, as is consistent with their illness, um, uh, Louise is too ill to be on air. But we still have Emily Edwards coming on to talk all about primary immunodeficiency uh, in just a moment. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3RRR. On the line now, we have Dr. Emily Edwards. She is a primary immunodeficiencies researcher at the Monash Central Clinical School and Vice President of OzPIPS at the Australian, which is an Australian charity that supports immunodeficiency patients. Emily, this is your fourth time on Einstein and Go-Go. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. 
It's great to talk to you. Now, as I said uh, just before the break, unfortunately, um, our young superstar, May, and her mum aren't uh, able to come in because Louise is a little bit ill. Um, But we will have them on in the coming weeks at some stage because they're two patients of this condition that is Mm -hmm. so prominent. So what I might do first, because it's World Primary Immunodeficiency Awareness Week this week, yes? Yes, it is. So just give us a bit of a rundown of what this condition is and what the effects are. Yes, so this is what we call an inherited condition. So it's passed on from generation to generation normally. Um, I said that normally there are some cases where it's unclear um, whether that's the case. So what it is, is these individuals have what we call mutations in their DNA. Now, DNA is like a... um, it's a bit like when you read in a book, basically. So you re- read in a book line to line, and this DNA then encodes how your cells behave. So in our case, we look, we talk about the immune system. If there's a mutation, or an, which is an error in that DNA, that DNA can't be read properly, which then means that there is a impact then on either the number of cells that you have or the, their ability to function. And because the immune system is so important, these issues then... um, end up with patients having things like severe um, infections because obviously you need your immune cells to be Mm. working properly. If they're not, then they can't control infection. And there are other things called non-infectious complications like autoimmunity um, and malignancies, which are more prevalent in these patients because of that immune cell dysfunction. So it's quite Mm. a big issue. I mean, there's some individuals where... They present with disease really early in life, um, and that can be a lot more severe than if you get it in adulthood. And the problem, though, if you present in adulthood is likely that there have been signs of the disease earlier on that just haven't been picked up. And normally what happens is these non-infectious complications like the autoimmunity and malignancy are your first presentations to the clinic. And what's happened is those have overshadowed all the um, increased episodes and severities of infections that you've had across your life. And then when you're asked about them, then when you come to the clinic, it's evident that you've There's been some sort of evidence the whole time. And the problem is the longer that it goes undetected, the more chance there is of there being things like end-stage organ organ, Mm. um, failure, which results can result in early mortality and, you know, and death. So it's quite problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've got a million questions, Emily, so let's go. Um, First of all, um, so is the immune system still functioning in these cases at all or is it completely sort of shut off? Is it sort of partially functioning? It depends very much upon the gene that's affected. Mm. So patients can have just a uh, dysfunctional um, response for one cell. For example, there are patients where they have no B cells and B cells are the cells that you'll hear a lot about. You would have heard a lot about all through the pandemic as well. B cells are responsible for producing these proteins called antibodies and the antibodies are protective against infections. So there are patients where there is a complete loss of these cells. Um, there are then patients where then they have still have things like T cells and other immune cells, so they can function to an extent to protect from other things. Um, or you can have reduced numbers. Mm. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, to be yeah. honest, Shane. Um, yeah. You can have complete absence. You can have some that are functional. You can... Those that are really severe, unfortunately, um, can have have either a loss of cells or um, a dysfunction of them in multiple 
different cell types and they're called severe combined immunodeficiency because right. the combination of those different um, issues is um, causing disease and in that case that is usually you would see that present in childhood because yeah. you've heard of the bubble boy yep um he david vetter was one of those children that had this um, disease and because of the fact that his immune cells didn't work properly he had to be put in a bubble to basically protect him from all the infectious agents that were surrounding mm. him so that he wouldn't get infected because he couldn't respond um and they would ultimately they would kill him so so, so one of one of the reasons we, we wanted to have may on today is i mean she yeah. has been such an amazing little proponent for for you know work on this disease and incredible little speaker i think she first came on when she was five years old which was just yes. the, the, the best thing ever and you know i saw a picture of her it must have been a year ago now um wearing a mask saying you know can you all just do this i've had to do this pretty much my whole life mm-hmm. what what does this mean for someone like may in terms of vaccination for for covid and so forth because yeah. we hear a lot of people talking about oh i i don't want to get this but i don't want to get that vaccine you know it's like but it's, it's actually not about you um it's yeah. about kids like me who i assume can't get the vaccination or it won't work for her is that right yeah so it's about the bigger picture really um at the moment they're not vaccinating children mm. so children like may will not be protected by vaccination they will need those of us around them to be vaccinated to be able to be protective and get what we call herd immunity um without that then it's going to be problematic for them and this is the case with all vaccinations it's not just with the covid vaccine um it's with all of even the flu vaccine yearly the childhood vaccines everything like that is to protect people like may who in real honesty don't have any other choice Mm. um and the other problem is if for even for adults with this disease vaccinations often don't work because their immune system does not respond to them yep so like for may it's important that we as a community get vaccinated to protect them yep Yep. and now is even more important than ever i mean we've seen the devastation that this whole pandemic has caused i think you know um if we can roll up our sleeves and help, we should. And I must admit, I've had my first one. Um, I think it was, yes, it was this week. Mm-hmm. I've had my first dose. Or yep. psyched up, ready for my next one. Very good, very good. Uh, but I think it's yeah. you know it's kind of part of being a society, isn't it? Um, you know, yeah. we, ha- we we have to do this because not everyone has, as you say, not everyone has the choice. What what about no. things like you know we're moving into this territory now that I'm, I'm sure you know you've had some involvement in this, but over the last ten years as we've we've jumped into this space of immunotherapies for many different mm. things, in particular for cancer. I mean, yeah. what does that direction mean for um, for people with this condition? Because one of the things that I've always said is that you know cancer research gets a very large amount of money appropriately yeah. so but some areas and the immune system has benefited from that because now that that's a legitimate pathway for treating cancer mm-hmm. there is a lot there is a lot of funding going towards understanding the immune system in a greater to a greater degree than what we ever did before has that has that sort of spilled over at all can can those immunotherapies be used with people with this condition Yes, they can. Um, so there are, when we can identify, so this is where genetics is really important. When we can identify the gene that is causing the disease, that allows us to give a patient a genetic diagnosis. That is the only instance that we can give a clear genetic diagnosis of primary mm. immunodeficiency. And in a, quite a few instances now, knowing that gene 
can direct us towards using therapies that will help alleviate things such as autoimmune disease. So those therapies that are already existing in the cancer clinics are actually now starting to be used on other patient groups, such as those of primary immunodeficiency, if we can demonstrate that there's a defect in that gene Mm. um, and that that defect obviously has an impact on immune function. And that's really important. And I mean, I know those of us that are kind of the underfunded um, (laughs) research specialties um, sometimes can't understand why cancer gets such all sort of all the money. And that's, it's just the way life is, but the investment in that area has driven so many therapeutic um, avenues that are now open that were not open before. So it's very much, it's money well spent. Yeah. Look, it's um, fabulous to hear that. Even note. though it's not yeah, distributed very well, but that's yeah. fine. Yeah. And, and it seems to me as though, you know, we, we've talked uh, on the show over the, over the last decade about, you know, understanding our, our sort of neuroscience and how much we've moved mm-hmm. ahead in that space. But the other big frontier for me has been the immune system and just how many things it affects, how many conditions it results in us suffering from, how many ways in which we don't utilize it. And one of the examples I, I've given a few times, and you know, I'm probably wrong because I'm a physics guy, not a biomed person. But you know, as far as I can tell, we get cancer all the time, but they, but our immune system deals with it, and then there comes a point where where it can't or or it gets out of control, and you know. It, it's obvious that our system is so incredibly complicated and so good at regulating all these things that if we can tune it up, if we can enhance it, we can do all sorts of things. But at the other end, of course, which is where we see you know, this, this area of um, primary immunodeficiency, when it's tuned down or it's not working, it's catastrophic. Emily, um, before we let you go, what can people do to sort of support this space? I mean, it's, it's obviously Awareness Week coming up. Um, yeah. what, what's on? What can people do? How can they get involved? Yeah, so there's lots of, the biggest thing is to educate yourself. I think one of the best resources I've seen online is to go to the Jeffrey Modell Foundation's Facebook page. They often put up really easy to access um, information about what are the symptoms. Um, And I think it's really good to educate yourself on what those are so that you know what you're looking for. Um, We're also trying to raise a bit of awareness of getting the vaccine because, of course, that is really ultimately important at this time. That's probably one of the most important things that's happening at the moment. Um, And just, you know, just be kind to each other because there's so much other things going on. These are invisible diseases like many others. And there there are struggles that these patients and other immunocompromised patients face that we have no Mm. even fathoming of. And, I mean, We've had it hard here with our lockdowns in Victoria, but these patients coming out the other side, even when we've come out of lockdown, a lot of them haven't been able to leave home Mm, because of the anxiety related with the the risk of catching the infection and the fact that because their immune systems are compromised, there's a high likelihood that they could get more severe disease. So I just think we just have to be kind and look out for each other. Yeah. It's certainly good advice, and I think one of the things I've found is whenever we have these diseases, even the ones that don't affect a huge proportion of our population, when you Mm. add all of those rare diseases up um, as a collective, they affect a massive number of people, and in most cases, that effect and that impact is really severe. And as you say, we may come out of lockdown 
many of the people with these conditions won't. In fact, they've been in lockdown their entire lives, or at least the entire mm. time they've known about the condition, which is which is tough. So, um, look, Emily, thanks so much for, for coming on again. It's great to see you, and um, we will organise to have May and her mum Louise on in in the coming weeks, so we can we can hear from them because I think there's something to be said for a seven year old telling you that wear a bloody mask yeah. and do the right thing. <laughs> if they can work it out, maybe the rest of us can too. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. No problem. It's absolutely our pleasure. Um, keep in touch. Good luck with the awareness week and we hope um, more and more people become aware of the need to vaccinate and, and take care in this time thanks emily thanks folks we're going to take a break for some important station announcements and then when we come back we'll be talking to gracie finko from texas one of our our new sort of i guess she's a, a co-host of mine now but she's one of the best communicators that we've got so that will be a bit of fun we're back in just a moment triple r Yeah, you are listening to Triple R, so it's doing the go-go time. On the line with us now, all the way from Texas, is our, I'm going to call you our U.S. correspondent. I think it sounds impressive. Gracie, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's good to have you back. Uh, we love having you on because you're, you're so good at communicating stuff, and people love that. Now, you, you had a big achievement this week. Tell us about that first. Yeah, so I actually um, defended my proposal this week, so I'm now a PhD candidate. So I've leveled up from my courses as a PhD student, and now I'm focused on my research. Fantastic. So that the uh, finished PhD, what, uh, probably by October? Oh, yeah, of course. 2024? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little way to go. And just quickly tell us, um, what, what's your PhD project on? Yeah, so it's actually looking at amputees. Um, so I was previously a clinician in prosthetics, so I saw amputees in clinic and would fit them for their prosthesis. Um, so I actually decided to go back to school for a PhD in order to do more research on how we can I actually identify their fall risk, um, because that population tends to have a really high fall risk. So mm. that's what my project is over. Yeah, I suppose it's not something, you know, with the the, the trauma and just the, the detail that goes into what happens when someone loses a limb, the, the focus is probably more on that um, than, than being on them falling and hurting other parts of their body, which can be, I, I suppose, in many cases, quite catastrophic. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, and over, or I should say almost two-thirds of amputees actually fall each year, and wow. almost a third of them fall multiple times per year. Um, and a lot of those, uh, you know, result in hospital visits um, and really serious injuries too. So it, it's a pretty big deal. Yep. Well, look, it sounds like a really good project. Now, um, that's what we're going we're gonna to talk about. Something else today, though, you wanted to talk about dinosaurs, which everyone loves a dinosaur story. So uh, do tell, what, what, what have you been looking into? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so most of us have probably heard of paleontologists. So these are people that study dinosaurs. Um, and have you ever heard of paleo artists before? I think I have heard that term, but I've never met one. They're, yeah, they're, they're so I had actually. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> there are very few of them, so yeah. that makes sense. Um, I had actually never heard of this profession before, but um, these are people that use scientific data basically to make images or models that depict any prehistoric life, so anything like dinosaurs. Um, and they also kind of bring that world to life for the rest of us. And why most of us probably, you know, we have an idea in our heads whenever I talk about dinosaurs or you say dinosaurs, we kind of have an idea of what they look and sound and what they look and sound like and kind of also how they move. Uh, so I'm going to basically talk a little bit about how scientists actually make these decisions hmm. to what uh, what these dinosaurs actually looked and sounded and moved like. Yeah, and I suppose that that's um, I'm interested to hear this because that's something that has changed radically in my lifetime. 
like what what they were yeah. and I don't want to give away too much about my age here. Everyone knows how old I am. <laughs> um I think that listens to the show, but you know, back in the seventies they looked a lot different than they, they did in Jurassic Park and they look a lot different now yeah. than they did in you know, the eighties. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's also a little bit about about what I'll talk about. So that's a really good jumping off point. So actually the first public dinosaur display was back in 1854. So back before your time, right? So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And the way that they actually showed dinosaurs was a lot like modern lizards that we think of today. So with their bodies kind of really low to the ground and their legs actually kind of out to the sides Hmm. rather than underneath their body and having this kind of really green scaly kind of skin like we think of kind of modern lizards today. Um, And dinosaurs actually tended to be shown like this really until like the 1950s, uh, until we had a better understanding of how they look. So to kind of put that in perspective, when Jurassic Park was made in 1993, uh, only about seven or eight T-Rex skeletons actually existed. Um, And actually, yes, so not very many. And actually, since that time, that number has more than doubled. Hmm. since 1993 so we have a lot more information now um but still complete dinosaur dinosaur skeletons are really rare to find so these things called comparative anatomists so they're basically people that study a range of you know modern animal anatomy are really helpful in making kind of these informed decisions about dinosaur anatomy Hmm. and i i I can imagine uh you you know when you say that number of skeletons you mean full skeletons right i mean there's probably a few that say hey i've got a femur and it's like yeah good for you um that doesn't tell you what the whole bone bone. yeah you found one one bone bone. it's a toe bone (laughs) and no you can't tell me what the head looks like sorry um so we're talking about full skeletons that give us the complete picture right exactly Yeah. yeah and then also kind of on this topic of comparative anatomy and kind of looking at you know modern animals to kind of inform that dinosaur anatomy. So for instance, uh, dinosaurs and birds have both been found to have this hole in their pelvis or their hip bones called a perforated acetabulum. And it's basically, it's literally means hole in the hip. Um, And it's kind of at the top of their femur that would fit into this hole. So that basically tells us that they could actually stand upright with their legs more underneath them rather than their legs sticking out to the sides, like kind of was historically shown. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And and what about things like, you know, we, we have this idea of how they stand, but there's got to be a lot more to the the way we visualize them than just the, you know, you go to the museum sometimes and you see the the skeletal appearance of a dinosaur. But whenever we see them in film or books, we see a very different image of dinosaurs. We, you, you don't see the skeletons in books, you see actual pictures or not, not photographs per se, but you know, <laughs> drawings. Right. It could be. Yeah. Right, definitely. Yeah. And so if you can just imagine all of the all of the assumptions that have to go into that in terms of like how much body fat did they have and how is it distributed across their body and you know the muscle and how the ligaments and cartilage worked and even that's even on top of like, you know, what they looked like, what color were they and all that stuff. Um and for example, so uh just to take the T Rex, I guess, for example, so before the nineteen seventies and kind of I guess dinosaurs in general too, used to be shown kind of in a vertical position. So kind of with their heads up to the sky and their tails pointing down. Mm -hmm. But recent, recent 3d models have actually taught us that that wouldn't be possible. So they actually would need to be in more of a horizontal position. So their necks and their heads are kind of more out front of their body with their tails more behind. So they kind of counterbalance each other. Yep. Yep. And then another example is that the T-Rex actually used to be shown with its little hands facing downwards. Uh, so kind of like it was playing piano. But uh, actually, <laughs> a recent, a pretty recent 2018 study looked at turkey and alligator shoulders. 
um, and actually determined that their hands may have been actually turned in to where they could they would be facing each other, kind of like they could clap. Oh, so they so. they're clapping, so they actually have a use after all. We always thought the T Rex hands, right? Had, so maybe they were clapping. Right. They were doing something. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> you <Yeah>. never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or I guess I mean I would I would imagine if they were if they had their little hands, you know, turning mm. in, it would be a little easier to maybe Grab maybe food. catch something. Mm. But I mean their their arms also were so small, I mean. Yeah, it's kind of a weird scenario that I've always thought um, you know, the the T Rex hands are a bit like our um appendix. You know. Right, yeah. Yeah. Almost yeah, gone sure. but but still there to be annoying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then one of the big discoveries in the last 30 years have been fossilized feathers, which historically dinosaurs weren't shown with at all. So, for example, evidence of feathers has been found on velociraptor forearm bones. So they have these little things called quill knobs, where ligaments for feathers would attach, kind of like what we see in pigeons today. And I don't know about you, but that definitely changes my mental image of a velociraptor. Like in movies, if I picture it feathered, it immediately just becomes a lot less intimidating. Yeah, just like this giant chicken chasing you. Exactly. Yeah. 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 With with sharp teeth too. Very, I'm sure, yeah, but. very large <laughs> yeah. teeth are the size of chickens uh, that can yes. rip you apart. Yeah. And and yeah. I, I suppose like I mean this is an area where you you must have incredible expertise given what you do. But we we don't always just see dinosaurs stationary in um in in film or you know or I guess just in film. I was going to say in books, but they are stationary in books. Um, but. There, there must be a lot that goes into understanding how they move as well that also comes from, as you said, they have to understand where the ligaments and muscles and so forth presumably were, all of these parameters around balance. That must then feed into, okay, how, how one of them moved. Right, definitely, yeah. And I'll actually talk a little bit more about kind of what they looked like and then get into the sound, what yep. they sounded like. Oh, cool. And then I, I have like most of my information is on movement. Uh, because, yeah, like you said, I mean, I look at human movement for my kind of research. Yeah. Well, let's, um, so let's that's where the, I really uh, geek out. Let's let's do the bit on um, how they look first, then we'll take a short break for everyone, and then we'll come back and, and do sure. the rest. Yep. Go for it. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I just had one more point, basically, on how they looked. So um, some fossilized feathers actually have been found to be preserved with their melanosomes, which are basically these tiny structures that are in animal cells. And they have different shapes, and their shape basically indicates their color. So, for example, the rectangular shapes would be more of a black color. And then if they were circular shapes, they would be more red. And so a technique called electron microscopy, which basically involves a microscope using a beam of electrons to view really tiny structures, can look at these melanosomes to determine their shape and then can then determine these patterns, like maybe there were stripes between red and black Hmm. based on the shapes of the melanosomes. Um, And then also as far as texture goes, uh, soft tissue doesn't usually fossilize that well, but they actually found one very small slice of fossilized T-Rex skin. Um, and artists actually made a stamp of the texture that they could then apply to the whole body. Mm. I, I, I have to say, I think there is an incredible, for some filmmaker out there, if they're listening, there's an incredible opportunity to make a Space Force-type spoof here of Jurassic Park where the velociraptors yes. are giant chicken-looking you know, characters in the film, but they are multicolored. Yes, <laughs> and that would absolutely. be super intimidating. <laughs> and they, and yes. they won't be—they won't be playing piano. They'll be catching balls. Yeah, they'll be catching balls. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, this could be uh, this could be a great film. I I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. Same. All right, Gracie, we're going to take a short break, and we'll come back, and we're going to hear more about this in just a minute. I want to hear—I'm dying to hear all about the movement stuff because I know that's in particular your area of expertise. Although I understand you haven't fitted any prosthetics to dinosaurs as yet. 
So Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay, folks. We'll be back in just a minute after these important station announcements. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We're on the phone, uh, on the phone, on the Zoom call with our US correspondent, Gracie Finko. She's teaching us all about dinosaurs and how we work out what they look like and what they do and move and sound. Let's go, Gracie. What are we up to? How they sound or how they move? Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about how they sound or how we decide how they sound. Yep. Um, so how, let me ask you, how do you think they made T-Rex sounds in Jurassic Park? Like if you had to guess what animals or animal... Well, probably probably something like a lion, like a large cat that really roars would have been my thought. Yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. So mm. it was actually made by slowing down a baby elephant's roar mm. and then adding other roars like tigers and then also like alligator noises, wow. like gargling alligator noises. So it was actually completely like not very realistic. It was just kind of the scariest sound that they could come up with, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Yep. <laughs> um, and actually, the researchers think that dinosaurs may have sounded a lot more similar to what we hear today in modern birds. So researchers from the U.S. and Canada actually analyzed noises from a bunch of birds and crocodiles. Um, and they generally tend to have two types of noises that they make. So one is called open mouth vocalizations. So this is kind of like what you could imagine hearing if a bird's beak was open. So things like if a bird is singing, if you can picture that in your head, that be kind of like an open mouth vocalization mm -hmm. and then the other one is closed mouth vocalizations so things these are things more like kind of low throaty air noises mm -hmm. yeah so they analyze yeah so they analyzed 200 different bird species and actually about a quarter of those had closed mouth vocalizations and smaller birds like sparrows didn't make those closed mouth vocalizations, but birds that had proportionally larger bodies, so like pigeons and ostriches, did make those closed mouth vocalizations. So they think that dinosaurs with larger bodies also may have made these sounds. Um, and then obviously it's really hard to find direct supporting evidence for this um, because, you know, the soft tissue organs like vocal organs don't really fossilize well. Mm. Um, but even though we don't have fossilized vocal organs from dinosaurs, researchers can study uh, fossilized inner ears to try to understand what they were able to hear, which could also then give us clues about what kinds of noises they could make. Um, and then also computer models have been made from digital scans of dinosaur skulls so that we can make more informed decisions about some sounds they could have made kind of using this computer modeling system. So, is, the, closed uh, mouth. so is it likely that the super scary T-Rex was more like a pigeon? Is that where we're headed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, disappointing. I mean, I don't know. I know it. Yeah, that's another thing. It's like the, you know, the picturing that T Rex making like a really high, kind of sound. Yeah, like a bird, like we hear today is just a little uh, off putting. Yeah, I, I mean, there's like, some but... scary crows out there, you know. So, not yeah, a, true. not a complete loss. I think yeah, we might true. be able to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. It's all about how you frame it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose, too, it depends on... You know, one of the things we forget is that there's such a diverse range of dinosaurs that existed. Like, it's not... You know, we have the, the four or five that we learnt about in our kids' books, you know, and, and then there's the other thousands of them that, that have been discovered. So, you know, like, there's such a range. They're not all going to sound like a squeaky pigeon. Some of them, some of them will maybe, you know, still got hope. Some of them sound a bit like a lion. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think whenever I was kind of looking into this, it seemed like a lot of research tended to be focused on the T-Rex, which I yeah. wonder also how much of that has to do with Jurassic Park. 
um, yeah. and just kind of what we were exposed to growing up, you know. Yeah, and and look, it's always been the the top tier uh, favorite dinosaur of most most people. So yeah, it's fair. It's fair enough. You know, right. It's like great white shark. You know, personally, I'm a fan of the hammerhead, but you know, it's not everyone's right. cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, now, what about the movement, Gracie? How do they? How do we know about their movement? How do we sort of work that out? Yeah. So as far as how they moved, we do have footprints that researchers can use to help kind of figure out their size estimation or how quickly they walked or ran. And they can do this by calculating the distance between their footprints. Mm. So one study a few years ago actually compared walking in three groups of bipedal walkers. And bipedal literally means two feet. So basically animals that walked on two legs. So the three groups were humans. So us. Um, They also looked at birds that walked on two legs. So like ostriches. And then they also used modeling from dinosaur footprints um, and specifically theropod dinosaurs, which is kind of what I've been talking about, the T-Rex and the Velociraptor, both theropod dinosaurs. So you can kind of think about it that way. Um, And so they compared step widths between these groups. So basically, step width would be how widely spaced the left and the right feet are whenever you're walking. Mm-hmm. So they plotted that against the speed of the animal, which they measured directly for the humans and the birds, but they used modeled estimates, obviously, of using the dinosaur footprints for how for the speed for the dinosaurs. Um, and they found that in all three groups, the step width decreased as the speed increased. So as somebody increased their speed, um, typically their their footsteps will get closer together to the midline of their body. So as the subject moved faster, they basically placed their left and right feet closer together. Um, But what was different, though, between the groups was that the way the step width decreased with the increasing speed. So in humans, you kind of think about whenever you transition from walking to running, it's very distinct. And the step width decrease is really abrupt. So kind of our walking and our running are very two distinct ways of moving for humans. Um, but in birds and dinosaurs, you don't have that abrupt change. So the step width decreasing was really gradual as their speed increased. Um, so that basically suggests that the theropod dinosaurs moved more like modern birds than us, which is probably not super surprising. Um, but this whole concept is called continuous locomotor repertoire, meaning that they have kind of this smooth, continuous transition to running as they increase their speed. And you can actually, I mean, if you if you look outside and watch a bird kind of go from walking to mm. running, you can see this, right? It's not that they're walking and then they're running. It's like they gradually increase their speed yeah, so that they're running. I think it's quite interesting. Anyone out there who wants to test this, try running with your legs further apart like they are when you're walking. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's really yeah. uncomfortable. I mean, you know this, Chris, yeah. you can't do it. Like it's really uncomfortable. You're going to give yourself really sore hips after a couple of minutes. Yeah, definitely. We were definitely not made to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's fascinating that we know all this now. Um, and the more the more we hear, I mean, I, I still I think there's there's going to be a generation of us that are going to have trouble letting go of some of the old imagery of um, dinosaurs. But it's fabulous that we have some of this coming through in a way that people can picture them as as they were. One of the things that you said that just blows me away is that um, somewhere on this planet there are footprints. Um, that we can find of dinosaurs, which is, you right. know, I don't know, six, 500 million years old. And we've managed to say, hey, there's some dinosaur footprints. And that's where the thing died over there. There's a skeleton, um, all preserved for us to, to get this information, which is just wild. Yeah, that's pretty crazy to think about, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, now, we, we've only got a, a couple of minutes to go, but you had a very small piece of news that you wanted to run us through as well before we left. Yeah, sure. And I actually just wanted to share my major favorite point about how the dinosaurs oh, yeah. moved yep, first. Sorry. So maybe yep. I could share that. Yep. So uh, so actually, researchers have found through computer modeling that the T-Rex couldn't actually outrun a Jeep. 
So oh. its top speed was probably <laughs> so it's actually a lot slower than than we previously thought. So its top speed was actually probably close to about forty kilometers per hour, or for my American friends, twenty five miles an hour. Yep. Um, and then for reference, humans can sprint about twenty four kilometers per hour or fifteen miles per hour. Um, and then also another study that came out just this year estimated that the preferred walking speed of a T-Rex, so the speed that it would normally kind of, you know, comfortably go at, was only about 1.3 meters per second. So only about three miles per hour. And to put that in context, most humans' preferred walking speed is faster than that. It's 1.4 meters per second. Oh, my God. We're going to stop with this point. We, 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 <laughs> yeah. no, we can't do the news now. I've got to talk about this. So I've got a T-Rex yes. in front of me. I can essentially just back up and it's not going to, I'm okay. Like I can. Walk. I mean, for just for preferred <laughs> preferred walking speed. I mean, it could definitely catch you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's a worry. Like that's it's, a worry. It's top speed. Its top speed is almost twice as fast as ours, but its preferred walking speed was kind of much slower. Yeah, I mean, one of the good things about this, though, that uh, you know, I try and remind people of as often as I can, is that humans and T Rexes weren't on the planet at the same time. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that whole uh, yeah, that's like crazy to think about. Yeah, yeah, it's like you know we went. I mean, I you know recently I realized that you know one of the Wright brothers and Neil Armstrong was on the planet at the same time. That's kind of a cool fact. Um, yeah. But but us and and dinosaurs were separated by a lot of history, uh, right. a very lot of history. And so right. you know, but it's interesting to, to talk about this in terms of those speeds. Uh, what what do we know what the sort of fastest dinosaur was do we have a, any information on that like what was the, the I, like... yeah i don't know mm. that's a great question i would think i mean i guess in my head i thought it was t-rex but i probably have that same bias as everybody else you know from watching all these all this media yeah um and, yeah i don't know yeah interesting and certainly question. as apex predators go um there have been others now it seemed as though we, each continent had their own set of um apex you know massive apex predator like a t-rex and a corresponding brachiosaurus um that right. sort of coexisted in these various places around the world so and t-rex definitely wasn't the biggest of them all um which is, which is right yeah. yeah yeah i read something about uh there was a recently discovered new type of dinosaur and they're calling it the titanosaur because ah, there was a gigantosaurus so, i think as well so they're they're running yes, out of names yeah they're running right, out of names. i know exactly <laughs> yeah what are uh, they gonna do yeah it's fantastic stuff i do like hearing about some of these little dinosaurs though you know the little ones that they're they're about the yes. size of uh size of a turkey and they're they're running around that you can imagine a little turkey sized velociraptor they're the they're the ones yeah, I, find I, very I almost picture them as like pets yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, pets that you don't fall asleep while they're nearby, they'll, they'll eat your face exactly. off. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, Gracie, thanks so much for giving us all that. It's so fascinating to hear about this and just the, the way in which um, this information is coming to bear now and, and how much we're learning um, about these great creatures that once roamed the earth. And, you know, it's incredible just I've seen in you know, my relatively um, short lifetime uh, that, that that information has changed so radically um, since, you know, yeah. even just the 70s and we have a completely different view now so gracie thanks so much uh get to work on your phd now that you're uh, you're in <laughs> yeah yeah thank you so much shane all right good to talk to you we'll talk to you again soon probably in a, in a month or so and um that'd be great so yes take care yes sounds great thank you okay you too. 
Bye. Folks, uh, that was Gracie Finko from um, from Texas in the United States, one of our correspondents. Stacey, you're still in the studio keeping me company. I'm still here. <laughs> so it's, it's, hard to, it's hard when we have something on Zoom and something not on Zoom. And, um, it is a bit know, tricky, yeah, but, the, but that, tricky. I was enjoying the conversation that you were having with yeah, Gracie. That was great. It's great stuff. It's fun. Um, Gracie always brings us some really cool topics. Folks, we're going to have to hand over now to the team from Eat It. A big thank you to our um, guest earlier. Emily Edwards talking all about primary immunodeficiency syndrome. Um, have a look at the Awareness Week stuff on that, folks. It is a really severe condition that affects a lot of people and another reason why it is so important that we all get vaccinated as soon as possible. And I really wish the media would do a better job of not vilifying that whole process. So that's the last note from me for today. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Gogay. We'll chat to you again next week. Here's the team from Eat It. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.